0: The No Sleep Podcast presents Suddenly Shocking, Volume 12. A collection of short, sudden stories with lots of twists and turns. These furiously fast tales are postcard length, and they can take you on long journeys even before leaving the station. So settle in and join us as we serve up these bite-sized stories, dripping with dark and foreboding horror. A
1: Midnight Call to My Neighbor by A.C. McAnally. I wasn't expecting to make a call like this tonight, but I couldn't just let my neighbor go without knowing. As late as it was, it took Chuck a few rings to answer.
2: Hello? Laura? What's wrong?
1: I stare out the windows towards his house chuck hadn't bothered to turn a light on hey chuck uh, sorry for calling so late but well uh, there's someone standing on your front porch the rustling of covers told me chuck was up and paying attention now
3: what can you
2: tell who it is what are they doing
1: it looks like they're just standing there facing your front door I can't tell exactly who it is, but it looks like a woman has long hair.
4: Okay,
2: I'll go do something about it. Thanks, Laura.
1: Wait. Wait, they're moving. Chuck, she just disappeared around the side of your house. Crap.
2: Okay. Um, Can you call the police for me while I go investigate?
1: I'll use my landline to call them. I am not getting off the phone with you. Stay on the line with me, and I'll try to tell you where she's at when I see her. Can you see her? Chuck's bedroom was upstairs on the back end of the house. I had house sat for him several times before, so I knew pretty much every inch of the layout and could calculate where the woman was heading.
2: I don't see or hear anything yet. Are you sure she didn't just wander off?
5: I don't know.
1: I just know she's not on your porch anymore. Chuck's house lit up as he went room to room, turning lights on. I watched Chuck's silhouette move down the hallway and disappear into the dark again after he flicked the lights on. A lamp illuminated one final dark window. But this time, there were two silhouettes.
6: Chuck, turn around!
1: Chuck spun, ready for a fight, but his stance did nothing to save him from the thing charging at him. The lamp fell over and broke. The window cascaded back into darkness along with animalistic screams and Chuck's cries of pain and help that I didn't need the phone to hear. I waited until all was quiet to hang up and call the police.
7: 911, what's your
8: emergency?
1: Hello? Yes, I need to report a disturbance. I heard horrible screaming from my neighbor's home. He lives alone, so I think someone must have broken in. Please, come quick. She was standing behind me before I hung up the phone. I didn't bother to turn around. Though she didn't frighten me as much as she used to, looking at her still disturbed me. Too many eyes, and too many teeth. Am I paid up for the year, then? Whispers played along my skin.
4: Yes.
1: The whispers encircled me, and I closed my eyes. She would be gone soon only to return for my soul in a year. By then, though, someone will ask me to house it for them, and I can mark them for collection. Better them than me.
2: Dead Man's Curve by M.M. M. Kelly. Locations named Dead Man's Curve are a ubiquitous part of American culture. These dead man's curves are generally precariously sharp or sudden turns in the road that catch motorists off guard, often with fatal consequences. Our country is host to many, though most of them are relegated to the dregs of local lore. My sleepy little corner of Ohio is no exception. The sharp embanked turn is overshadowed in the larger American zeitgeist by the Dead Man's Curve of Cleveland, which is in no small part more prolific because of Cleveland's larger populace. The Dead Man's Curve of Claremont County has been claiming lives for generations. At first, the gravel and dirt roads would slide to cause loss of control. Eventually, they tried bricks, which, much like in Cleveland, proved to be too slick when wet. The switch to bricks marked an interesting change in the behavior of our killer curve. First and foremost, the wrecks were more predictable. They mostly happened during or immediately following rain. Secondly, accidents that took lives started to leave gouges in the road. Even after the roads resurfacing with cement and later blacktop, the grooves of varying length and girth have resurfaced and even been added to as motorists continue to disrespect the very nature of that stretch of road. Most traffic going into that curve, and almost 100% of the accidents, happen headed west. Eastbound traffic is usually on a wider stretch of road. Westbound is, too, but sometimes people speed out through that old country road for a shortcut. The State Highway Patrol attributes this discrepancy in accidents... Two motorists with the sun in their eyes, and the vastly different number of cars eastbound versus westbound. But strangely, most of the incidents happen at night. The gouges in the road curve with it, like tally marks carved into a cell wall. There's a new addition to our local legend, though. Rumor has it, if you disregard the 10 mile per hour speed limit for the curve and run over it at exactly 33 miles per hour. The vibrations that rock through your car sound like a chorus of pained groans. I tried it. It works. What no one will tell you, though, is what happens if you're coming back headed east. If you veer off into the oncoming lane and ride those wretched gouges at 47 miles per hour... The car will shake just like when you hit any other rumble strip, but instead of the rumbling of the road or groaning, you'll hear four simple words that skip like a record being played in reverse.
9: Bites By James Michael Schoberg One night, a boy named Robert and his younger brother Doug had gone to bed as ordered, but were troubled by a bug. Now just what kind, they couldn't say, but curled up in the gloom, both heard the creature skitter as it darted through the room. Despite the warmth of summer, They preferred to bear the heat beneath a pile of blankets which cocooned them neck to feet. For though the two perspired, wrapped in covers from the chin, it bested the alternative. Six legs against their skin. Then Robert whispered in the dark.
10: I think it may have gone. Do you still hear it, Douglas?
9: This was answered with a yawn. No.
4: I don't hear it either, and I hope the crawly creep has fled into some crevice so
10: we can finally sleep.
9: Distrustful of the quiet, Robert reached out for the light and hoped beneath the shade he'd find a knob and not a mite. With one click of the handle, all the blackness disappeared. Through squinted eyes, he focused on exactly what he feared. Antenna, long and twitching, brushed against poor Robert's hand. Though just beyond, the siblings viewed a horror far more grand. Projected to a monstrous scale, the image of the pest surpassed the size of each of them where it had come to rest. In unison, their choral screams ran out and down the hall, but Robert's cry abruptly stopped, as did his brother's squall. Their dad burst through the bedroom door to see about the noise. The scene which played upon the wall no doubt had scared the boys. In silhouette, a giant insect loomed above their beds. Dad joked, Your shadows look as if it's bitten off your...
11: by Moison. I lost my husband the day he and our neighbor Ted set out for the fall hunt in the northern Ontario woods. That morning, I watched Daniel ride away in Ted's pickup, and a hollowness overwhelmed me. Gravel crunched under the truck tires and the taillights blinked once before darkness enveloped them. The house became so quiet, I wanted to burst through our front door, run across the lawn, up the driveway, catch up to them, and beg Daniel not to go. But I stood by the window, trying to shake the despair. Dawn crept in, and the emptiness clung to me like a persistent sickness. I put the coffee on, Made a light breakfast of toast and butter, and eventually fell into my routine. But the gloom stuck to me the entire week. Ted called when he got home. He insisted he be the one to inform me of Daniel's disappearance. They had reported him missing on their way in. My husband had wandered off in the night wearing nothing but Long Johns and his jacket. He didn't even take his boots. Two weeks later, they found Daniel shambling along a small road, 20 miles from town. The constables who found him said Daniel wouldn't respond to their questions. With frostbitten extremities and his hunting jacket in tatters, he fought them, insisting he must return to the forest. They calmed him and got him in the cruiser, then drove to Geraldton District Hospital. Daniel returned home later that day. But this wasn't my husband. For hours, he stared blankly behind our property, where Yard met Thicket. Listen. Hear that. What is it, honey?
6: The gales in the attic.
11: His question and answer never changed. But there never was anything coming from upstairs. Daniel refused to go back to work, never left the bedroom, and stopped eating. Although we shared a bed, I was an intruder. On Daniel's last night, I woke up, shivering, a little before three in the morning. Through his phlegm-filled breathing, the draft from outside was intensifying, and I sighed. My throat was dry and irritated. I imagined having a cup of sand in my dreams. Why do you keep opening the window? We'll breeze to death. The wind slashed from all sides. It twisted and tugged at my nightgown with invisible hands that felt almost real. Before I could untangle the covers trapping me against the mattress, Daniel rolled over and wheezed. The drawn-out sigh seemed to last forever, a drowning man's final breath as he grudgingly gives up and takes in the ocean. In the glow of the digital clock, Daniel stared at me, gaunt and emaciated. The blankets on his side had slipped off, and he lay fetal, hugging knees I was sure had become frail overnight. His face was a mess of irregular shadows, cheeks marred and sunken, radiating white pimpricks of luminescent cold shone through his eyes, and tufts of his hair whipped around. The wind picked up again, but not from the window. It remained locked. A delicate pattern of frost was spreading from the edges. As I exhaled, My breath turned to a mist of ice crystals. They danced in the frozen air, highlighted by the single street lamp by the road. Daniel's lips parted, so thin they were almost non-existent. He's... here... (sighs) Who? Who's here? He stretched out the word, his face contorted, his jaw cracked open, mouth widening beyond natural limits, a gaping cavern. For a few seconds, a vastness threatened to emerge, something I still can't understand, but terrified me.
3: Uh, help me, back.
11: The wind roared from deep within Daniel. It dissolved his last words, the hurricane pulling everything in on him. And then he collapsed in on himself, leaving me alone and trembling in the corner as a blizzard of dust and snow raged around me.
12: It's Not a Fairy Tale, by Elliot Capon. You don't think of New Jersey as rustic and wooded, but in the northwestern part of the state, in the mountains, in the state parks, there are black bears and coyotes and bald eagles, and marvelous hiking trails through generally unspoiled woods, one of which I found myself on, on the most perfect autumn day in history. I had been walking for hours accompanied only by my thoughts along a marked well-beaten path when i saw what appeared to be another path going off into the woods to my left well my woodcraft and sense of direction are good enough that i knew i could divert from the path while i was on without getting lost so with a dramatic hitch of my backpack i turned 90 degrees and started up the new path i hadn't gone 15 minutes before i saw the cottage in the clearing what's his name that artist uh He calls himself the Artist of Light. You know the one? It was like one of his paintings. You know, a cottage cottage. One story, little porch, walls mostly ivy covered nice little flower garden in front. I stopped maybe a, a hundred feet away. I wasn't hungry. I wasn't lost. I didn't need a bathroom. I had three quarters of a bottle of Gatorade in my backpack. So I intended to gaze for a moment and then turn away without bothering whoever lived there. Just at that moment, the door opened and a woman came out. She kind of looked like uh, like B. Arthur from the Golden Girls. Remember her? Tall, silver-haired, dignified.
13: Hello there. Come in, why don't you?
12: I didn't want to yell, so I, I walked a little closer, and I told her that I didn't want to intrude, that I was just walking in the woods, you know, so on and so forth. But she insisted I come in. thinking it ruder to turn and walk away than to encroach on her hospitality, I went in. The cottage was one very large space, semi-divided into what looked like a, a living room and a kitchen. I saw a TV, microwave, refrigerator. Out of a side window, I saw an older model Toyota. Well, at the lady's insistence, I took off my backpack and sat down while she went to make tea. I had to comment on the fact that she had all the comforts of home, as it were, despite living in a cottage in the woods. Well, She laughed as if she'd heard it all before.
13: <laughs> this isn't a fairy tale, young man. Just because I live outside the city limits doesn't mean we can't get electricity and plumbing.
12: <laughs> well, She brought a tray of what were apparently homemade cookies and poured tea she said was made from herbs grown in her own garden. She told me her name was Mrs. Palmer. I'd somehow gathered that Mr. Palmer had departed this veil of tears some years ago, and I thought, oh, 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 uh, how do I tell her she's not my type? But it didn't come to that. She just chatted about how pleasant it was to be able to live in relative solitude in a cottage in the woods, despite it being the 21st century and all. But, of course, she had the car and a phone and even a cell phone. But not a computer, because she couldn't get a wireless internet signal out here. And, 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 and. the tea was very soothing. And despite my wish to be as polite as I could, but still get the hell out of here as soon as possible, I found myself growing sleepy. Oh, it would be embarrassing if I fell.
3: (sighs) If I fell.
12: If I fell.
5: From the Drain by C. Leichenberg. It came out of the bathtub drain. I'm the one who pulled it out using a coat hanger. I didn't know what I was doing. I thought I was fishing out a clot of hair that was jamming up the pipes. And that is what it looked like at first just a clot of hair. So banal. Then I pulled on the hanger. And there was more, and more, and more, until it splotted free and wet on the floor of the bathtub. I don't have a word for it. It is bigger than my cat, and smells like rotting donkey asshole. It isn't an animal, though it does breathe. Loudly, I might add, and always when I'm trying to sleep. When I'm awake... It does not seem to breathe at all. And it whistles. That is the other sound that it makes a peculiar, steady whistle. So even in tone, it does not sound natural. This it does at all hours, at its own whim and reason. It has one eye, a single gold orb, positioned at what I have come to think of as the top of its form. That eye is positioned in such a way that it always seems to be looking at you. It follows me, room to room to room. I've never seen how it ambulates. One moment I'm alone, free of its presence. The next moment, it is there, just at the edge of my vision. My cat hates it. He hides beneath the bed, growling. He even growls at me when I come into the room. It is deaf to the pleading, commands, and threats. Once I tried to pick it up again, to move it, only to find that it had grown as heavy as a slab of stone and that it was peculiarly warm to the touch. When I pulled my hands away, shocked and revolted, I found my fingertips sticky with blood. I have not tried to touch it again. I think it has killed my cat. I do not know that for a fact, but I have not seen my cat in some days now. He ceased to growl when I went into the bedroom. I have looked everywhere and cannot find him. Yesterday I noticed it closer to me. I thought it might be testing the range. When I woke up this morning, I thought I had gone blind. I was terrified. Then I realized that it was on my face. It had settled over my eyes like a sleep mask. The putrid smell of it came over me, and I began to scream. I tore at it with my fingernails, frenzied. Somehow, I got it free and threw it out the door into the hall. It is out there now, whistling. My face is covered in blood. There are punctures at my hairline. I can feel them, tiny and deep. I do not know what it is. I do not know what it will do next.
12: I woke up in some kind of a cage, or or at least behind bars, like a prison cell. There there were no windows, so I assumed I was in the basement. It was dark, but not pitch black. It got lighter when the door at the top of the stairs opened, and, and Mrs. Palmer came down the steps and stood before the cage. She pulled off her silver wig and some rubbery kind of mask, and I saw her cracked. Bluish-gray skin, her, her warty nose, and a few straggles of thin hair clinging to the side of her scalp. Her voice had changed too. It was scratchy and cackly.
13: I told you it wasn't a fairy
14: tale. In the fairy tales, it's the children who get eaten by the witch.
13: Inscription by William Stewart It's been a long day at work and you are exhausted. You take a long look into the fridge and the pantry before deciding to order takeout online. After changing clothes, you scan channels for anything good on television. After a little while, the doorbell rings. You answer the door, but rather than a delivery driver, there is a young boy of about seven years old. He looks as if he's been playing Army. He has on a green T-shirt, green camouflage pants, and black boots. He wears a small green backpack and an orange pistol and a plastic holster on his hip. He looks sullen, and you suspect he's about to confess to some mischief, such as a broken window or trampled flowers. Instead of speaking, he pulls an envelope from his pocket and hands it to you. He takes a step backwards and stares at the ground obviously waiting for you to open and read the letter. You unfold the single page and begin to read. Dear Sir or Madam, you are hereby drafted into military service per Statute 8, Clause 2.1 of the Revised Constitution, undisclosed statutes, which states... For the protection and general welfare of the state and its citizens any and all persons of gender and ethnicity are subject to impressment with or without notice and for tenure and purposes specified, as needed, by military command. Welcome cadet. You are now part of an organization that is of vital importance to national security. Our operatives are the finest in the world and you share the honor of being part of that proud tradition. In training our elite operatives, we sometimes discover psychological markers that may cause hesitation to act under certain circumstances. The purpose of this exercise is to discover the source of these markers and overcome them. We accomplish this by creating a profile of a person who triggers these responses. We then conscript an individual who closely matches the profile. Our operative is then required to confront his or her fault in a live-action scenario. Cadet, you are the subject who most closely matches the profile. As you read this message, our operative is standing by waiting to carry out orders. These orders include, but are not limited to, your incapacitation, torture, and execution. We must inform you that it is of utmost importance that our operative successfully complete his or her mission, or else another individual will have to be matched to the profile and pressed into service. Therefore, all precautions have been taken to ensure this exercise is a success and that risk to our trainee is minimal. Any weapons you may own have either been rendered inoperable or removed from your residence prior to your receiving this communication. Please do not attempt to escape. We have security personnel charged with securing a perimeter to keep this exercise contained. Any breach of the perimeter will result in your being terminated and our organization will be forced to match another individual to the profile. Despite being disarmed, you are welcome to fight. Please beg, cry, and or attempt to bargain with your assailant. Be creative. Anything you can do to trigger the marked behavior is both encouraged and infinitely helpful. With your help, we can solve this perplexing problem and make the world a safer place for all. Thank you for your service to your country in this, our time of greatest need. Sincerely, Military Command Rapid Impressment Center, 3013-42669. Incredulous, you read over the letter a second time. As you come to the end, you look up and notice the boy is staring back at you. The orange pistol is now in his hand, and you realize that it is not a toy. His face is still sullen his eyes haunted. They said when you finish the letter,
14: I'm supposed to zap you till you fall down. Then I have to use my knife.
13: A lot. You stumble backwards and the boy raises the weapon, walking forward and pushing the door closed behind him. I'm sorry, ma'am. That's why I'm here. They
14: say I'm supposed to not be sorry, but they always know when I am, even if I say I'm not. They say I have to keep training until I'm really not sorry.
13: He pulls a lever and tiny metal barbs fly out and attach to your shirt. He pauses for a moment as if thinking of something else to say. Then finally, just before squeezing the trigger... I'm sorry about your baby too.
15: Micro Morts by Charlie Davenport. He moved to the bedroom window quietly. Melinda was standing outside, waiting for him. There were so many reasons he shouldn't do this, he thought. Betraying his marriage, losing his kids, losing the house, and the fact that Melinda had died The senior year.
6: There is a book in your home that you didn't buy. It wasn't given to you, and you may never actually get to read it. Which is a shame, because it tells the story of your life, and there are far fewer pages than you might imagine. Mike had realized that he was fundamentally
12: different from most people. When he arrived at work this morning and found his co-workers gathered around, trash bags and kitchen knives in hand, he knew that the others had finally realized it too.
16: You see him on your way to work every day. Thumb and arm outstretched, but everyone just drives past him like he isn't there. You regret not calling the police the day you ran him
0: over. Mark flinched at the creak in the floorboards, gripping the bat a little tighter as he searched the darkened hallway. He didn't want to wake the kids, and after all, this wasn't his house.
17: You ever wake up in front of the TV, and find the actors just staring at you? No. No, me neither.
18: The Lady of Moths by Alexander Hay As a photographer, I've seen some sights, to put it mildly. But there are some things I wish never to have witnessed. Like what happened to an old friend and mentor of mine in the trade, a New Zealander by the name of... I'll spare you the details. He... ...he was meant to have died of natural causes. There's nothing to be gained by dragging his name into this, but... ...still, I've got to warn you... ...like he warned me. Anyway, it was 1972, which seems so long ago now, and yet... ...strangely recent. That's the odd thing with that time. It was haunted, in a way, when... ...things, people, ideas, and of course, good taste started to come apart anyway uh, my friend had done time in southeast asia doing press agency work in the dying days of the vietnam war he even claimed with a morbid glint in his eye to have taken a photo of pol pot drinking tea (laughs) it was a strange decade but he'd grown tired of corpses horror and terrified people running for their lives So he decided for a complete change of scene. A friend of a friend got him in contact with a photo editor at one of those country life mags you can still get in the UK. You know, where some chinless wonder gestures at his family pile and horribly inbred dogs while his minions gear up to rip another fox to pieces.
9: Still, it paid
18: The gig was to take photos of old country estates that had fallen into ruin or disrepair. That might sound odd, but remember the grandeur of ruined abbeys and castles, or (laughs) even brutalist architecture? There is an odd beauty about things that fall apart. My friend agreed, and had a great time climbing through old wrecks, uh, hedgerows and piles of rubble to take photos of things that are now long gone, swallowed up by nature... "'Now, you no doubt expect me to tell you that he uh, ran into a ghost "'or was uh, beamed up and probed by aliens, "'or got burned on a pyre in the name of John Barleycorn. "'But that's not what happened. "'It was stranger. "'He was driving back from his last shoot at about two in the afternoon. "'It was a bright, sunny day, and the country roads were empty.' So there he was, uh, trundling along in his car until... he wasn't. Suddenly he found himself standing in a wood with strange trees whose faintly withered and pockmarked structures seemed to twist and writhe in the soft breeze. Their leaves were of a curious thickness and cast a darker shade of green than you might expect as the sun shone through them. He felt a strange queasiness, like he and everything around him was undulating and swaying. Yet whenever he concentrated, the sensation stopped. All around were thousands of moths, strange things buzzing lazily through the air. My friend had one briefly land on his hand. Well, certainly a moth in the loosest sense, it was bizarre. It distorted and, and uneven in its proportions. Its wings slowly moved and pulsed with a strange disconcerting rhythm. It was grey in colour for the most part, but small, sudden, iridescent flashes of red, blue, purple, silver and orange kept, kept appearing as the moth vibrated softly in his palm. Then off it flew, joining the others as they flitted clumsily through the air. My friend became aware of a house in the distance, a two-story white and black gabled building of the kind more at home in America than the English countryside. He felt a strange compulsion to walk towards it, but as he did, his body seemed to stretch and warp and the pathway somehow became infinitely long and suddenly short. As he walked, or, or flowed, or perhaps oozed, or flew there, he suddenly found himself on the house's porch, outside its front door, and yet yet he was still walking, always walking, and yet he had always been there. The door opened, and my friend walked in and was swallowed. No, no, he, he ran away, but, but it caught him. The house was empty and dark, its windows shuttered. It was dry and only faintly dusty, yet yet my friend felt it was somehow incredibly old. He limped down the hall and into the dining room. There, at a small, elegantly crafted table, sat a louche but refined young woman in a long, tattered grey dress. Her eyes were small and dark, and the tiara she wore intimated antennae. She was drinking tea from a tall, narrow cup. But then she sat it down, smiled, and beckoned my friend over. He took a seat.
14: You have quite the story to tell. Do begin.
18: And my friend told her everything of how he would be found twenty metres away from his wrecked car, miraculously unharmed and yet smashed to pieces. Of how he developed those last pictures he took, and how they twisted and turned and made him scream. Of how he went mad and became his own child, raising himself to follow in his crippled footsteps. Of how he became the mother and the father and the soil from which he had risen. And how he died and yet rose again to listen to me tell you, tell him, tell us this story... (laughs) you'll see the moths soon enough i I see them all the time i i see me through their eyes which are mine too Uh, and when they cut his body open they'll see things inside that should never have been (laughs) they'll burn it forever and he will die to tell the tale and then he was the Lady of Moths herself watching me tell you this story and how perhaps I I was you all along the Lady of Moths will know she is still talking to me now (laughs) patiently she sips her tea
0: The Literalists by L. H. Michael As any New York City bike courier will tell you, the final delivery of the day always happens in a building that wouldn't pass the safety codes of 1740. Another sure bet is that the tenants of that building will be on the run from several international bodies. The building where Lee needed to make his final delivery looked gentle enough except that its front door was open. In New York, unless someone is moving in, a building's front door always remains shut. Lee didn't see any moving trucks. He needed to deliver a flat 10-by-12-inch envelope addressed to an A. Richard in apartment 6E. It listed no sender. He buzzed the intercom. Package for A. Richard... The reply sounded like a recorder played by a platypus. Lee had no reason to care. As long as someone was home, someone hopefully willing to forge A. Richard's signature if necessary, that was good enough for him. As he ascended the stairs, he tripped on something long and pointy. It was a broken-off stiletto heel. Lee wondered again about finding the front door ajar. It was late in the day and given the mayor's desire to see the city's sidewalks become methadone clinics, he kept alert for any rogue parties squatting in the building. He heard rowdy thumping overhead. It didn't sound like rearranged furniture or hammered nails. It sounded like kinetic movements, maybe an exercise class. He wanted to believe someone had left the front door open so late arrivals could enter without halting the festivities. When he reached the third floor, the noise degraded into an alarming conflux of shuffles and clacks. Attributing any of the noise to individual actors wasn't going to happen without instant replay. He finally reached 6E. An eruption of high-pitched sobbing within the apartment made him want to turn back. There was something otherly about the cries. The pitch was shocking and laced with a pathos that made opera sound zen. He worried genuine torture was taking place inside the apartment. There were multiple voices. There could be multiple victims. On the other hand, the distressed sounds could be coming from a television. After dithering by the door, he decided exhaustion had left him oversensitive. After verifying the apartment number again, he raised his hand to knock. He heard a raucous crash inside 6-E, followed by howls high enough to create their own skyline. Lee dialed 91, then paused. Whatever might be happening in the apartment didn't concern him. As he put his phone away, something sizable smacked against the door. He flinched and dropped his bike helmet, which thunked loudly down the stairs. Apartment 6E's door peeled halfway open, and a woman's head popped into view. Her contact lenses were so artificially blue, her eye sockets looked like nests for robin's eggs. Package for... A. Richard. The more Lee observed her, the harder it was not to stare. Her cheekbones, which sat far too high on her face, were almost certainly implants. And her slug sized lips had to be 80% collagen. Given all that, her peroxide blonde hair wasn't exactly a plot twist. She stepped out from behind the door. Her pseudo tan skin had the color of one of those crayons kids instinctively leave in the box. Her breasts were three sizes too large for her body. It's a fine line between having a perky chest and having a bosom suitable for landing a helicopter. Her skin and chest weren't half as surreal as her comb-length eyelashes, which brought to mind the magnified image of an insect. She stuck out her hand. Her fingernails had to be five inches long and were wider than her fingers. Worse, they were mirrors of some sort, procuring Lee a glimpse of his mystified expression. As he handed her the package, her stance became gladiatorial. Do... You need a pen? The woman shook her head. He's here. She flung the door open. Inside 6E stood a platoon of similarly enhanced women, each studying him with frostbitten eyes. I just need a signature, please. The woman reached for something behind the door, then coiled back into the doorway. Can you sign? The woman grabbed Lee's collar and pulled him into the apartment. He felt hammering pain in his hip. She tasered him. He dropped and she tasered him again. Behind him, the door slammed shut. He jerked towards the door, which earned him more tasering. The woman stepped on his hands and yanked his head up by the hair. A redhead, a foot from Lee, hoisted a pitcher of milk and hurled it against the wall. It broke into shards the width of table legs. The red-haired woman threw herself to the ground and bawled in the most wretched manner imaginable, spitting and frothing as she wailed. Another woman picked up a glass shard and jammed it into the screamer's throat. The women cooed as their tribeswoman bled out from the neck. The woman gripping Lee's hair yanked even harder. He tried breaking free, but received another massive shock. A brunette took center stage and made a big show of waving her right hand. The room hushed. A different woman, this one with blonde white hair, got on her knees and crawled to the brunette. The brunette dangled a lump of bread in front of the kneeler. The kneeler nibbled the morsel from her hand and then bit into the brunette's fingers. The brunette stared blankly as her bloodied hand sustained bite after bite. The chomping carried on for 10 seconds before the brunette whipped out a blade and drove it clean through the kneeler's cheek. The women crowed as another of their clan got sliced the women's literal adherence to beauty standards wasn't even the craziest thing about them. They had also created rituals built on equally literal adherence to figures of speech. One cried over spilled milk and became a sacrifice. One bit a hand that fed her and became a sacrifice. Their literal bodies were handmaidens for their literal minds. Lee heard one of them speak. Open it. He watched the envelope he delivered torn open. A woman removed a document and placed it under his nose. It read, Don't kill the messenger. Lee looked up in time to see the hatchet collide with his face.
17: My house smells like shit and brimstone, thanks Roomba, by M.M. Kelly. Anyone who has dogs or small kids in a Roomba knows. You walk into a room, you smell poop, and you pray. Nine times out of ten, Rosie's bastard cousin finds the poop and smears that shit everywhere. Last Wednesday was no exception. I went to eat some shredded cheese from the bag like some kind of opossum and the stench hit me before I even entered. A combination of a destroyed box of slim jims, death, and maybe a hint of wet food. Rowdy had definitely released the beast. At least it's on tile. I entered. I thought I was prepared for the worst. My Roomba had wandered into the kitchen. It had tried its absolute best to clean up the soiled area. Unfortunately, shit just makes those things go crazy. It had bounced around the kitchen like a drunk toddler until it got wedged under a bar stool. (coughs) Screaming wasn't the most productive way of dealing with the situation, but it was cathartic. I went to get my mop and Lysol when I heard an ungodly growling and a retching coming from the kitchen. God damn it, Rowdy! If you make more of a mess, I swear it's the pound for you! It sounded like something barking in the kitchen. I came back, mop, bucket, and Lysol in tow. The stench was considerably worse, and now there was a massive brown, swishing goop in the middle of the kitchen. Standing back, I could see it was the dead center of a pentagram of smeared dog shit. The mass gurgled and swelled, but the sound it made didn't seem nonsensical. I felt dirty just hearing it, like it was a tongue that I shouldn't know, like my divorced guidance counselor. Words echoed through my kitchen that can't be translated words that refuse physical representations. A form began to hulk from the mound as it pulling itself up from the depths of the abyss. A vaguely humanoid form rose from the muck, dripping and churning the foul birth from my dog's innards. The wavering waste was featureless, but the bodily motions told me it was disgusted as it looked at its own upturned hands. It flung its arms into the air and let out a primal scream. Its jaw opening painfully wide, flinging dog shit in every direction. It flailed its limbs, trying to get the shit off, but all it achieved was making me want to burn my kitchen down. The manure-made monstrosity bellowed, Spewing feces from its gaping gullet. I stood there awkwardly, trying to find the sentience to run, or beg for my life, anything other than letting that thing bite my head off. More of the stinky shit beast emerged, but it stayed a gurgling, flowing mass. It snapped its neck back and forth and shifted its jaw from side to side, making noises akin to a child trying to utter its first words finally spoke
19: who
15: summoned me
17: yeah I had the feeling I'd be in deep doo-doo if I admitted it who summoned me I started backing away I wasn't sure how fast the demonic defecation was, but I was pretty sure it was going to hurt me. I—I I, I don't know anything about summoning, but uh, you, uh, Mister, shit, uh, Mister Shitlord, uh, you came out of where my Roomba smeared a uh, rowdy's um, his poop. A large yellow eye emerged from the center of the steaming shitshow's head as the monstrosity collapsed onto all fours like a dog. (laughs)
9: Imbesil!
17: I turned and ran for my life. As I fled, I glanced over and the foul feculence lunged for me. It missed and went for a second powerful leap. The slimy limbs gained no traction on the tiles, though. Roar like a tiger ripped through my house. Windows rattled, pictures fell from the wall, and... Jesus Christ, the smell that emanated from within was unholy. The crap creep screamed in frustration, tearing through my narrow hallways, sending splashes of brown out every which way.
3: You forced me into a body made of shit!
17: If a poop pentagram brought it here, I reasoned, maybe some of the other horror movie solutions I picked up over the years would work too. I'd already burned all my sage stock after mistaking a seagull for a harpy, so I doubled around the house and back into the kitchen. I grabbed a bag of rock salt that I keep from my ice cream maker and dug out a handful as the savage stool sample burst through one of my windows. I hurled the salt at its giant eye and gaping maw. It coughed and hacked and stayed standing.
9: So, you need to season the shit that you put in my mouth.
17: That yellow eye was starting to turn red. I poured the salt in a thick circle around myself. The furious feces' shoulders heaved, and it shook its head. Fucking mortals. It walked right through the salt, and smacked me on the back of my head. You're a fucking idiot.
9: I'll just take the warning labels off of everything in the house,
20: in the...
17: Then, the turbulent turd terror popped his shit-smeared fetid finger into my mouth. As I hacked and ratched, it crawled back into the pit and pulled it shut. That was two weeks ago. My house reeks and the spots that the evil excretion flung shit onto are permanently scorched. I put the Roomba up on Craigslist free to a good home or not good home i think i'm gonna have to sell this place cheap holy fucking shit
7: Picture Perfect by Christina Orlea. Stunned, Allison drew her arm up to shield her face as she stepped backward into oblivion. She blinked and the blur began to ease. The enormous black door began to close. Horrified, she dashed for the door But the harder she ran, the further the door appeared to be. As her chest burned and she was certain that she was going to pass out, the immense black door shut, extinguishing the light. The sound echoed into the expanse. Allison shivered, not from cold, but from emptiness.
5: Hello? Is anyone there?
7: Slowly, turning in a circle, Allison looked for a way out. She couldn't tell the size of the room, but it felt cavernous. She blinked, hoping to refocus, but the room only grew darker.
5: What the hell is happening? Where am I? Wait, where was I before...
7: She took a few cautious steps to her right.
5: I think I remember a party. Yeah, I went to a Halloween party. Taking another couple
7: of soft-footed steps, she heard an echo roll out from somewhere off to her left. Turning that way, she thought the darkness seemed lighter over there. Changing course, she took a step towards the sound. Wait,
5: whose party was I at?
7: She tapped her index finger gently on her chin. Oh yeah, Sarah's Halloween party. Pacing the area, she was now somewhat able to see. She still couldn't quite make out any features, but it appeared to be a room, empty of furniture. Her brow furrowed as she concentrated, still tapping her chin. Quickly, the events of the night flooded her brain. Sarah had pleaded with Allison to come to her party that she was hosting at her boyfriend's house. He lived a few blocks from campus, and it was supposed to be pretty low-key, so Sarah wanted someone to hang with. Allison was due a study break, and she did have a costume. Well, sort of. It was a thrown-together Catwoman piece that she'd created from a little of this and a bit of that. Dressing up was never really her jam, but she figured it would do the job. When she got to the party, there were lots of people from campus. Many she knew. Most she didn't. Everyone was in costume. So much for low key. She remembered seeing vampires and a few pirates, among other costumes. After four rum and cokes, two tequila shots, Sarah puked after the second one, and a handful of cheese balls, Allison decided to call it a night. She looked around for Sarah to say goodbye, but all she could see were dancing costumes. She headed for the door, then realized that she needed to pee. Pushing her way through the sea of costumed bodies, she headed for the bathroom. Out of the corner of her eye, she saw a guy that she hadn't seen before. Out of all the costumes, his struck her as odd. He was wearing an old-timey reporter outfit, a goofy hat, thick black glasses, and had a camera with one of those big old-time flash bulbs. She could see that it was duct tape to the side because the camera didn't look old enough to have that kind of flash. It looked like he had pieced it together from this and that, a lot like her costume. She smiled at him as she went up the stairs.
5: Then I remember going pee, washing up, And then... Then... I opened the door. And then what? I was here? Wait, that can't be right. She looked down, straining to recall. That noise! And a flash of light! Won't be long now.
7: A pang of terror shot through her, and she knew that she had to get out.
5: What? What? What won't be long?
7: She scanned the darkness.
5: Hello? Who's there? Can you help me?
7: She couldn't be certain, but she swore that she heard a laugh. (laughs) Abruptly, the room began to shake. Allison was tossed from right to left until she tumbled forward.
5: What the hell is happening?
7: now. This time, the voice was much clearer and closer. So close, Allison could feel air tickle her skin. She spun around, hoping to see the source, but she was only met with darkness. The ground began to shake once more. Allison fell, desperately trying to gain some footing. She saw a crack of light. It was faint, like the beginning of dawn, full of hope and freedom. The shaking stopped. Standing, Allison calmed herself and looked at the light again. It was becoming brighter. That must be the way out. (gasps) Allison ran at full speed. This time, the light didn't fade into the distance, and she could see a gigantic door. And it was opening. Yes! Yes! Her body tingled with joy. She was getting out of this godforsaken place. Allison reached the door just as it finished opening. Slowing to a jog, she began scanning the exit, looking for a walkway. But what she saw made her skid to a halt. There, staring down at her, was a gigantic face. A face that was wearing thick black glasses its mouth twisted into a gruesome, slimy smile.
16: Well, hello, my love. We are going to be so happy together forever.
7: <laughs> that penetrating whisper chilled Alice into the bone. She knew that face, and now she understood what happened. It wasn't an old-time flash film camera that guy was wearing. It was a Polaroid camera. He had taken her picture when she opened the bathroom door. Shivering, she collapsed to the ground. The shock of what was happening was too much. As she thought that she might lose consciousness, she heard Sarah's voice. Excuse me, but have you seen Allison? Hope. Hope kicked in, and Allison jumped to her feet and began to scream. The face looked at her and winked. As he turned around to face Sarah, he placed the photo in his inside coat pocket. Allison was once again in total darkness with no sign that her voice was heard.
16: Mm, Allison? No, I don't think I know her. Oh, wait, I, I did hear some people saying goodbye to an Allison over by the stairs. Maybe that's your friend.
8: Oh? She usually finds me before taking off. Well, I guess I'll give her a call. Thanks.
7: The darkness shuddered. Allison realized he was patting his coat pocket. She could hear the music and people as she was jostled about. It felt like the man was making his way through the partiers. Then he strolled out into the eerie, cold silence of the night.
19: Must Serve Men by Melody Grace Growing up in a very religious home, I was taught that women must always serve men. Given the fact we were created from a man's rib, it only made sense that we were put on this earth to be companions for them. I often used to dream about the day I would find my partner. Would he be handsome? Would he be strong but gentle? Would he be my provider and protector? My young mind had no idea what the years would bring. When I turned 18, I met John. He was everything I could have imagined and more. Sweet. Gentle, kind-hearted. He was perfect. We had an advantageous marriage per the request of my parents, and it was magical. Winter had come and encased the grounds with a vast blanket of divine white powder, causing us to light several fires in its midst. The warm glow beckoned our guests with a dance of ice and fire. The ceremony was beautiful. Our family dog, Kenai, even brought our rings down the aisle, gliding swiftly between the stones. John expressed his undying love for me in front of all our family and friends. And just like that, we were husband and wife. We set off for our honeymoon hours after and quickly boarded the plane to Bora Bora, A beautiful gift from his parents. The first day was perfect. We spent all of our time wrapped in each other's arms. Filled with all the love our bodies could muster. I remember gazing into his dark brown eyes of heaven. Asking myself how I got so lucky. Then his whole demeanor changed. I watched as his mood slowly shifted the moment I mentioned our future children.
17: Let's just hope our first is a boy.
19: I stared back at him, confused. Why would the gender of our baby matter? I chalked it up to the fact that all men must dream of having a boy first, to carry on their legacy and last name. The next day, however, his true feelings began to show. While at breakfast, I watched as he ordered for me, mortified not only at his selection, but also at the authority that dripped heavily on his tongue. The rest of the day stayed true to the morning. No choices made that day were my own. When our honeymoon was over, things progressed immensely, I found that he thought my friends were childish and that I should make new ones. He also forcibly mentioned that I should quit my job and remain home. A request that, when refused, resulted in pain and dark sunglasses. I begged my parents for help, pleaded with them to talk with John. But I always received the same reply. I must serve my husband. I would cry for many sleepless nights when I found out I was pregnant with our daughter. John was
21: furious. How could you give me such a weak child?
19: He would yell at me with such a darkness in his eyes. I feared for my life. I had to find a way to protect my baby from his wrath. My parents had given us Kanai as a wedding present. My one true companion in this dark world shaped by men. He collected most of my fear-born tears with his obsidian fur. Always there. Always comforting. Last night, John came home in one of his moods, Destined to set my world aflame with his hands.
17: Honey... I'm home.
19: I took blow after blow before something changed in Kanai's eyes. He had had enough. With the strength of a dragon, he rose from his bed. Eyes locked onto John. One moment, John had his hand clasped tightly around his throat. The next. was reaching for his own as Kanai tore into his chauvinistic flesh. I fell to the floor, hands covering my eyes as I heard my husband scream out in pain. The sound of blood gurgling in his throat serenaded the night. I was free. I heard chunks of flesh bounce off the walls with a deafening When Kanai had finished with his prey, he pranced over to me with a warmth I had almost forgotten. With shaking legs, I crawled to John, a part of me hoping he was alive, while the other rejoiced in his departure. When no pulse was to be found, I leaned heavily against the couch and sighed. How was I supposed to get rid of the body? Today, I woke up to a text from my mother asking John and I to attend my younger brother's graduation barbecue. A brief moment of panic coursed through my veins before the solution hit me in the gut like the betrayal of a knife. I spent a few hours preparing a dish for the celebration while Kenai danced at my feet. I made sure to throw him a few pieces as a reward for his bravery. Once everything was ready, we departed to my parents' house. I informed my family that John was ill and wanted me to send them all his love. They bought it. When dinner was placed on the table below the cherry blossoms, I glanced around at my family with joy in my heart. My aunt smiled at me with a mouthful of food.
13: Wow, Danielle! This meat is so tender and delicious. You must tell me your recipe.
19: I beamed up at her and nodded as I patted Kanai from under my chair. I looked down at my plate with pride. I had done my duty as a wife, despite all my tribulations. After all, women must serve men.
15: Thirteen Causes for Alarm, by Mike Ireland. Something went terribly wrong in the lab. Fifteen people went in. And seventeen came out.
6: I swore I saw something at the top of the stairs. I gasped when something grabbed me from behind. The
12: paper said Logan Clark had been missing for a week. Which is funny. I could have sworn he'd been in my basement for at least three by now.
16: Father Philip stretched out his hand as he tried to expel the demon.
17: The power of Christ compels you.
16: The demon put out its hands and stretched Father Philip.
0: It wasn't until the bottom of my cup of coffee that I found it. Shouldn't the eyeball have floated?
17: Medical school was going smoothly, until yesterday. I put my scalpel into the cadaver, and it
10: gasped. The curio shop was very unassuming until I went into the basement. That was when I heard the door shut and lock behind me.
15: I never noticed the little door behind my washer. When I saw it the next day, I definitely did not remember opening it.
6: Through the peephole, I could see her, but there was something wrong. She looked like Katie, but where did her eyes go?
12: It crackled and popped and skittered down the stairs. I thought I could make it out of the front door. But then, I saw the second one coming down the
17: hall.
16: You could see the smoke and hear the chanting from deep in the woods. I approached the tree line to enter, and then the screaming started.
0: the pollen wasn't right this year. Since when has pollen made your skin slough off in
12: chunks? She
17: looked like my grandmother, and sounded like my grandmother. But the zipper running down her back made me think otherwise.
8: Book by Kylie Ladwig I'm not afraid of the forest. There's a little path in a patch of forest near my house that leads from my backyard to a bus stop. I discovered it while exploring after moving in and realized it was perfect. It was a great way to save money on gas and use public transit, save the earth a little bit. The first time I took that path home from work, I saw a gorgeous, absolutely massive deer, its antlers forked off like a a hunter's wet dream, lean muscles rippling under his coarse fur, standing taller than I was. I paused for a second, caught up in his beauty and very aware of the fact that if he wanted to, he could completely destroy me with a flick of his head. He regarded me with a cool gaze, left ear flicking back and forth. There wasn't a challenge in his eye as far as I could see, so, after a few seconds, I took a small step forward. Thankfully, nothing. I continued forward at a slow, hesitant pace, always keeping an eye on the buck. He watched me walk in front of him, head moving as I went past. Once I was confident I wouldn't be impaled, I picked up my pace, exiting the forest with a smile on my face. I thought about that interaction for the rest of the day, hoping he would be there the next time I walked home. I've seen him every day since then. He's never there when I walk to the bus stop in the morning, but he's there on the walk home without fail. Sometimes he waits for me at the start of the forest. Sometimes he's the very last thing I see as I exit. I never find him on the path, though, and I've never seen him outside of the woods. He's become the thing I look forward to most on my walk home. Lately, though, he started to change. I began to notice it a few months back. I'd been seeing him so often that it was easy to spot, like a stain on your favorite hoodie. He was missing a few patches of fur. I dismissed it. Maybe he'd gotten into a territorial spat. He didn't look like he was hurting. I figured this kind of stuff must happen to wild animals all the time. His fur never grew back, though, and soon more patches, bigger patches, decorated his body. Then the sores came. They were big, gaping, and angry, turning his once gorgeous light brown body red. I tried googling what it could be, but all I got was that he was most likely healing from fights. Realistically, there was nothing I could do. I just hoped he'd get better soon. I hated seeing him like that. He didn't get better. Exactly one month ago, his eyes went red. What were once the whites of his eyes became a deep crimson. It unnerved me, being watched by that bloody stare. I had to constantly remind myself he was still the same buck. I can't say I got used to it, but I did stop feeling so nervous after a bit. Two weeks later, his ears were riddled with holes. A few days after that, his skin and tendons gave way to glistening white bone. Finally, most of his flesh tore away, and his teeth bared at me in a stomach-churning grin. Apparently, I was the frog in the boiling pot, because I didn't ever think of going a different way or, or using my car instead. After tonight, though, I may quit my job and move to the other side of the country. Tonight, the buck wasn't waiting for me at the edge of the forest, or even off the path. He was dead in the center of both grinning at me with his stark white teeth. The tatters of skin and meat and tendons that remained on his rotting body hung like old curtains swaying in a breeze that wasn't there. His ruined left ear twitched as I stopped walking. It literally was not possible for him to still be alive in his condition. Maybe he never was to begin with. When I looked in his eyes, I knew then and there I would never step foot in a forest again. His eyes were the deepest black I've ever seen. My world started to blacken around me, choking out the light and air, creating a vacuum and sucking me in. His stare held horrors that spanned decades, centuries, millennia. It held death and mindless destruction. Killing just to watch the blood flow like waterfalls, bones ground to dust and blowing away in the breeze, showers of molten fire raining from the heavens. The broken knees of kingdoms and kings. The maniacal severing of errors. The surprise ending of peaceful worlds. I watched it all. Lived it all. Becoming myself again was the most painful thing I've ever experienced. Being forced back into my body after witnessing eons of destruction felt like all of that pain and suffering at once. I felt like I was being cleaved in two and pulled apart bone by bone. (laughs) I fell to the ground, clutching my head and screaming. He didn't even flinch. Once the pain subsided, I glanced up, hoping he was gone. He wasn't. Instead, he looked the same as he did the first time I saw him. He nodded at me, so slight I would have missed it had I not been staring at him like a madwoman. With that, he trotted off the path, returning to the spot I'd first met him all those years ago, left ear twitching. I took off sprinting through the forest and all the way home. Like I said, I'm not afraid of the forest, I'm afraid of what's inside. <sighs>
21: She Was Schizophrenic by Scott Sabino My mother told me she was from the past. She was a schizophrenic. It's a brain disorder. Makes you see and hear things that aren't really there. Most people have heard about it. Now, this may not make a lot of sense. It's a story that was told to me when I was a kid by a crazy person. But she was my mother, so I've thought about it a lot. There was a man a long time ago, in 1932. I imagine him with a bushy mustache and a bowler hat, and all his clothes are brown. One night while he slept, someone came in his room and cracked him open with a hatchet, bowler hat and all. Now his clothes were red. When his head split open, all the nightmares poured out and became real. Goblins, ghouls, the things that go bump. They all flew into the sky and put out the sun. After that, there was no day, and it was always night.
13: See, we don't live in now. The whole world is still back in 1932. We just don't realize it because we're all asleep. In the real world, it's always nighttime. Nothing we see with our eyes is real. It's all a fake, crazy dream everyone is having. Together. A collective unconsciousness. Nightmares used to come as we slept. Now things are backwards, so we are always asleep. An adaptation to keep us safe. Keep them away. Once the nightmares come up, they can only hurt us when we awake.
21: My schizophrenic mother told me she was from the past. It's probably best not to believe her stories. She told me she knew this because the man next to her woke up. And then she woke up. He woke up first, so the nightmares were already killing him. She picked up the lamp from the table next to the bed. In an attempt to knock herself back to sleep, she bashed herself, and bashed herself, and bashed herself in the head, over and over and over again, until her pretty face was a bloody pulp, like a pie-eating contest gone wrong. Her face was cherry pie now, a mess. She was still awake, and now she was all gooey. Once they'd picked the man's bones clean, they went for her. They started clawing inside, through her stomach, to her guts. The pain was so intense that she passed out, and didn't wake back up. Schizophrenically, my mother told me she was from the past. She said it was hereditarily past. I don't think we should believe her. I mean, she used to say a lot of strange things. The more I think about what my mother told me, the more I wonder if she was right. I woke up last night, at the height of a Great Depression... The bed that I woke in sat in a room that had three walls and no roof. I rolled off and underneath. I stayed and hours passed. I had no shoes. I had no food. I wore a bowler hat. The sun was gone and the nightmares shone, their glowing red eyes down like spotlights from the skies, searching me out in time falling weary. Sleep was finally found. It all makes sense now. Now that I know, I'll never wake up again. My schizophrenic mother was from the past. She's been dead most of her adult life, but she still remembers to call. In fact, she called this morning. She told me to tell you it's safe to wake up now. But if I were you, I wouldn't believe her. She was schizophrenic, after all.
14: Skipping by James Michael Schoberg. Now Rachel, small and awkward, was a solitary sort Who at a secret lonely pond skimmed pebbles just for sport Quite well concealed by trees and brush, the sight she deemed her own No one could tease and taunt her in this place long overgrown The girls supposed the spot was once much easier to find This theory she had based upon some remnants left behind. A fishing line entangled and an old deflated ball. That single dirty sneaker, Rachel noted one and all. Though these were but a few among the objects on the bank, each with a story left untold while in the mud they sank. One day at recess, Rachel snuck away from grammar school. She couldn't bear the mockery and endless ridicule. Her backpack on her shoulder, the untidy little frump, soon reached her hidden haven and sat down upon a stump. From there she took a hefty rock which rested at her feet, and in a fury tossed it, never having left her seat. It broke the surface with a splash and rippled where it hit. I can't hide here forever, but I'll know they'll never quit. Then Rachel's stomach growled. She'd fled before she'd eaten lunch. Wait. "'I still have a candy bar I tucked away to munch.' With hope, she burrowed downward to the bottom of the sack. "'All that I need is just one piece, a single sweet, a snack.' That instant, she remembered having tripped the day before. This led to Rachel spilling out her bag along the shore. "'Perhaps I didn't see it when I gathered up my things. "'Of course not. I was more concerned with making water rings.' Just then she saw her tasty treat was lying safe and sound, pristine and clean and neatly wrapped for having touched the ground. So Rachel tore the foil back and bit down hard and fast, not noticing the rusty hook and line that had been cast. Invisible, the filament, once tangled on the beach, now stretched out from the mire, down her throat and out of reach. Yes, tautly wound, it pulled her forth. Her shoes grew cold and wet, but floundering was pointless. She was baited, snagged, and set. There was no rod and reel in sight, just one translucent thread that issued from the centre of the pool to which she'd fled. A gout of blood burst through her lips and left a copper taste, and as the thread sliced through her palms, she knew the fate she faced. Surrendering, she limply dropped headfirst into the drink. Beneath the parting lily pads, she vanished in a blink. Her backpack joined the other misfit items on the land. In time, it too would be obscured by earth and shifting sand. Young Rachel's end, albeit grim, provides a moral, though. Still waters shouldn't be disturbed... Who knows what sleeps below?
6: The Man Cave by Men and Lizette. Paul collected Brendan's empty glass of lemonade.
16: Thanks again for coming. I really needed your help on a few oh, finishing touches to the man cave. No problem. I'm stoked to
2: finally see it. It feels like you've been working on it
16: forever. <laughs> Only about a year, you know, in my free time. Labor's not so bad, but getting the material has been murder. Oh, I hear you there. It took me
2: months to find a marble floor the missus would agree on. At least you've only got yourself to please, am I right? (laughs) No wifey in the man cave.
6: (laughs) Brendan was looking forward to Paul's man cave. The only friend who'd seen it so far was Sylvan. Last they'd spoken, he was on his way to help with the wiring. Brendan hadn't had a chance to ask him how it had gone yet, but Sylvan was a fine electrician, so he had no doubt he'd done a great job. Finally, their friend group would have a place where they could get away from the wives and enjoy a cold beer, and play darts and pool and fart and watch the game on the weekends. No nagging, no questions, just pure, manly testosterone. Paul reached for the basement door, smiling apologetically.
16: Mind your step, it's a little dark going down. I really need
6: to add a light switch at the top of the stairs. He opened the door, and indeed, it was pitch black. Brendan wasn't too fussed. He simply held the handrail and took the stairs one at a time. As he descended, he could hear some sort of hissing or whirring noise below, like big industrial fans. Maybe to dry the paint? About halfway down, he noticed the handrail becoming thinner. He thought nothing of it. Paul wasn't the handiest of handymen, and he figured he'd miscut the wood. A rookie move, but harmless. Brendan's foot landed on a strangely squishy step. He pulled his leg up and blurted out a quick apology, thinking he'd stepped on Paul's cat. It was silent, so he prodded the step tentatively and found a flat, catless surface that gushed when pressure was applied like a waterlogged plank.
2: Oh geez, did the basement flood?
6: Somewhere in the darkness, Paul answered.
16: Hey, hang on, let me get the light.
6: Each step down was as vicious as the next. When Brendan reached the landing, he pawed around for a wall. His hand met something warm and sticky that thumped against his skin, like the feeling of a baby kicking in its mother's womb. What the... The lights turned on, and the room was bathed in reds and beiges. Brendan's mind began to feel a little fuzzy.
16: Welcome to my man cave.
6: Brendan couldn't make sense of what he was seeing at first. The walls were coated in some sort of leathery tarp with red glowing strings branching out in every direction like intricate neon lights. He could hear deep, bassy, reverberating thumps like drums playing in surround sound. There was a dart game in the corner, but the circle was small, and the spaces seemed to be made of alternating hairy and bald spots. At the very center, at the bullseye, was an eye, blinking, twisting up and down, Wide with horror. He could see ribs sticking out of the fleshy walls, DVD box sets wedged carefully between them. There were at least 10, maybe more, of these. The basement temperature was perfect, exactly the temperature of a human body. The faces started to come into focus. They were warped and stretched beyond recognition cave. There was a gleam in Paul's eyes as the truth finally hit his friend. Brendan stuttered, stepping back. The edges of his vision darkened.
2: W- Why did you invite me?
6: Paul grinned and reached for a pair of garden shares.
16: I needed a few extra pieces. You know.
4: My Mirror Won't Stop Staring at Me by Ashley Banks. My mirror won't stop staring at me. It fixes on me with my own hazel eyes, a silent and unwavering horror behind them. The eyes are wide, unblinking, pupils dilated like an expanding black hole that I might fall into if I lean too far forward. I back away slowly. I can feel my own eyes widening in fear mimicking my reflected doppelganger. I back out through the doorway, never turning my back, never taking my eyes off the mirror. I slowly shut the door, but it's not long until I'm back in the room. I can't keep away. I first noticed it a few weeks ago. Other mirrors are fine, simply showing me my own reflection, unaltered. It's just my mirror that seems to fix the reflected eyes determinedly on me, never looking away, always widened, always dilated like my own eyes are screaming at me. I've tried turning my head slightly to the side, watching out of the corner of my eye as my reflection mimics me. But the eyes remained focused directly on me. I invited a friend over asked her to look into my mirror. Did anything seem odd about it to her? I was horrified to realize that when she looked into my mirror, her reflection fixed on me as well. The confusion and concern were there, but her eyes were tinged with an unwavering focus. I suddenly laughed nervously, telling her I was just kidding and didn't I fool you. Rushing her hurriedly out of my room, I've been staring and staring back at my mirror for hours now. Trying to catch it unawares, tilting my head this way and that. Turning off the lights, checking different sections of the mirror itself. And it's only now I realize with horror that my reflection isn't staring back at me. It's staring at something standing directly behind me.
20: Smitten in Stone by Barbara Posey I met her here, at the museum. She works here, I think. At any rate, she is always here when I come. And I've never seen her leave the front entrance. Oh yes, okay, I watched. Couldn't catch her coming or going though. I'm shy. It's really hard for me to meet people, girls especially. They just do something to me. Every one of them, every time. Full-on sweaty palms, hyperventilating, no words. So I watch, mostly. And sometimes that is enough to grow a sense of acquaintance. Then I can say boo to a goose or hi to a girl. This girl, well, she's special. I mean, really special. Tawny, olive-gold skin that glows. Generous, smiling mouth. Just the right height for me. Long, luscious hair, dark and thick. She does some kind of arty dye job that gives her hair a subtle patterning of colors that shift and move as she moves or light catches it. She's always busy, head down, hurrying here and there with a clipboard, and when she does look up, her glasses reflect the light and give her an endearingly goofy look. Today I almost caught her eye as she whizzed through the Etruscan room. She stumbled then and dropped the clipboard, and I picked it up for her. And we talked. And made a date. Me. I'm waiting in the Greco-Roman wing for her to get off, wandering happily among the busts and pediments and statues there. It's been a long time since I got this far with a girl. And oh, this one is so special. I know I will take weeks with her, and I know her warm, husky voice will scream beautifully. The museum is empty now. Here she comes. She's in such a hurry. Her hair is flying around her face. She's taking off her glasses. And her eyes. I wonder how many of the other statues here are like me.
10: Wheel of Misfortune by Riley O'Dell The wheel spins and Marissa watches Round and round, round and round it goes A dizzying frenzy of color It hurts Marissa's eyes But she watches and watches Round and round, round and round it goes When will it stop? Will it ever stop? Marissa's heart thuds in her chest, fast as the wheel, fast as the flurry of thoughts running through her head. Thoughts about where the wheel will land and what it will mean for her future, their future, his future. She wants to look away, but she watches. The wheel slows, it stops, and with it, Marissa's fragile hopes are shattered in an instant.
5: Depression?
10: The infant in her arms begins to wail, as if he understands.
5: He's going to have
21: depression!
10: Her husband Mark places his hand on her shoulder.
21: It's okay. Look at the wheel. It could have landed on cancer or AIDS. Depression is treatable. Everything's going to turn out fine.
10: Marissa nods wiping away tears from her eyes.
21: You're
5: right. Of course, you're right.
10: Mark and Marissa leave the hospital with smiles on their faces. The parents always smile when they leave. Dr. Harris has delivered hundreds of babies. He spun the wheel hundreds of times. He's seen it all. This one will be a social outcast. That one will turn to drugs. He'll be found lying dead in a roadside ditch like a piece of discarded trash at the age of 30. Those parents smiled, too. They didn't know that in 30 years they'd be looking back and wondering where the time had gone. The wheel loves depression. It lands on that space more often than any other. Every time it happens, Harris imagines he can hear the cha-ching of a cash register at a pharmacy somewhere far away. He calls it the sound of life. Fourteen years later, the baby of Mark and Marissa decides he just can't fucking take it anymore and blows his brains across the wall of his bedroom like an art project. They're not smiling after that. But later... Once the grieving couple has spent hours sobbing into one another's arms, Marissa looks into her husband's eyes and says,
5: Do you think we should play again?
10: And the game goes on.
12: A Day at the Park by M.M. Kelly.
21: Over
22: here!
12: A strawberry blonde boy flailed his arms to attract his quarterback's attention. The other boy stood in slack-jawed awe as the football spiraled across the park to the blonde boy, hitting him square on the forehead. A shocked silence descended on both teams. The football bounced to the feet of an old man who'd been observing the game. The blonde boy hit the ground like a sack of potatoes. The old man stumbled across the football in a mad dash to get to the boy. He checked his breathing, then shook his shoulders gently.
0: You all right in there? Yeah, I think so.
6: I guess the guys thought it was a (laughs) gas.
12: Laughter fluttered through the gathered mob of boys. The old man shook his head in disapproval, sympathy overtaken with momentary disgust. The boy shrugged.
20: It's all right. Don't be so glum, Mr. Jacob.
12: Jacob shook his shiny, slightly spotted head to clear the fog of his mind and helped the boy up with his wrinkly arms.
0: Why don't you play with the girls? Take it easy for a little while. I'm sure they would enjoy your company.
12: The boy ran back to the football game, diving for the ball almost immediately. Jacob sighed and returned to his post on the wrought iron bench. A few stray crows pecked the ground around him the song of a few girls carried through the flowers and
16: trees.
12: (sighs) Jacob leaned to the side. The children reminded him of himself, of his youth, of the children he never had. For all the years he'd spent in that park, the playful noises of children in the afternoon almost never changed. After retiring from the elementary school, this was the therapy he had to keep him young, to renew his zest for life. The children coughed and hacked intermittently, (laughs) dropping passes and interrupting songs. The boys playing football slowed to a crawl. The girls' songs mellowed to a half-hearted hum. One by one, they laid down in the grass. Jacob's zest faded once again. Retirement was just a cover. The ragged newspaper next to him reminded him of that. Negligence. Bold front and center. His eyes were heavy with tears that he refused to let go his shoulders weighed down by all twenty of the children before him. A firm tug at the knee of Jacob's slacks brought his attention to the park. The blonde boy looked up, his eyes graying.
4: It's okay to let us go, Mr. Jacob. We know you didn't mean for the gas leak.
12: One after another, they faded from sight. Once the last little girl was gone, Jacob let his tears flow. He would be back tomorrow. And so would they.
1: Until Death by Karen Laranaga.
3: Get up. Get up.
1: A sob escaped Paige's throat as she shook Adam's shoulders, but nothing she did could wake him. She closed her eyes and raked her hands through her thin hair rocking on the edge of the mattress.
4: Please. Please get up.
1: (laughs) But when she opened them again, nothing had changed. This wasn't the kind of nightmare she could leave behind come morning. This was the waking kind, and one she had been dreading for months. Time hadn't prepared her the way she'd hoped it would, the way the doctors and the parish priest had claimed it could. Who would feel ready for death to visit their own bed?
11: This isn't
13: how it's supposed to happen. We're supposed to be together forever and for always. (laughs) Remember.
1: (laughs) Adam didn't stir. She clawed her nails down her hollow cheekbones.
13: That's
15: why we made them change our vows. Until death wasn't for us.
1: The last word faded into a sorrowful wail as Paige collapsed onto her husband. Her body trembled, shaking free the tears that welled up in her eyes, and she doubted she'd ever stop shivering. Seconds grew into minutes, which stretched into hours. And at last, Paige knew what had to happen. Fate might not have chosen to take them together, but that didn't mean they'd have to be apart for long. Her mind drifted to the sleeping pills in the medicine cabinet and Adam's straight razor on the bathroom sink. But another idea struck her, one that wouldn't require her to leave his side even for a moment. Resting one hand on his chest and the other on her own, She leaned down to kiss him for the last time. Her lips lingered on his. No air moved between them. No breaths snuck in or out. Then, his heartbeat slowed beneath her fingertips. Slowed. Slowed. And stopped. Paige's tears stopped flowing. Adam's chest stopped moving. He rose from the bed and they surveyed the bodies they'd left behind, hers now hours cold, hand in hand, together again. They faded into the next life.
3: The Worm King by Adam Davies Worms are everywhere, all around us. If you went outside now and looked in your garden, you would find dozens, hundreds even. Scientists estimate that for every 26 kilograms of biomass of mammals above ground, There is a corresponding 330 kilograms of worm biomass per logram. They outweigh all mammalian life by around 12 to 1. Although they are simple creatures, you can teach a worm to find its way out of a maze by shining lights down the correct passages. If you cut a worm in half, each half grows into a new worm. If you take a worm that has been taught its way out of the maze and cut it in half, Astonishingly, each half will now also know its way out of the maze. Even more incredible, if you mince up a worm that knows its way out of a maze and feed it to a different worm, that new worm will now also know its way out of the maze. A maze it has never seen or been near. Worms are amazing creatures they operate a kind of cellular memory that has never been observed in any other creatures. Swiss scientists, wanting to know more about the astonishing properties of worms, laced the food of hundreds of earthworms with radioactive isotopes to allow them to trace these amazing creatures' underground paths and habits. They were shocked to discover that over time, every worm made its way to the same location sometimes traveling hundreds of miles underground. Once they reached this point, all the worms seemed to begin to travel slowly in the same direction. This is how the worm king was discovered. He tunnels underneath us, this king of worms, a pale giant, corpulent and stinking of the grave. He calls all his subjects to pay homage to him. They come. And with them, they bring knowledge, for the monstrous Worm King devours them all. His knowledge and his power are always growing. Worms are simple creatures with simple minds. But consider grave worms, who devour first our eyes and then our brains as we lie rotting in the earth. Is it really nourishment they seek? No. They are the servants of the Worm King, sent to find out what we know. They use their unique cellular memory to take our thoughts and our memories back to their cruel master. To show the Worm King what the world above ground looks like. Over half the world's population have parasitic worms living inside their bodies already. Threadworms, pinworms, roundworms, hookworms, and whipworms are just some of the Worm King's troops already positioned against us. They squirm inside you, unseen and unknown. He lies beneath us, this Worm King, seeing what we see, knowing what we know. He grows jealous of the brightness and warmth of our world above ground. He plots and he schemes and he waits. He knows his time is soon at hand. He knows his assassins are in place and he likes his 12 to one odds.
22: Three Minutes by Marcus Demanda. I'm very particular about my eggs. I don't like to experiment as a general rule. They have to be just right. And I know exactly how to do a three-minute egg. Remove the egg from the refrigerator. Set it in a deep saucepan, putting it down gently. Immerse it completely in cold water, then set it on the stove. Cover it and crank up the burner. Bring it down to a simmer only after it's come to a full boil. Cook that thing for exactly three minutes after that, not one second more or less. Careful when you take it out. Run it under cold water so the insides shrink and it peels easy. There you go. Got your teaspoon and egg cup? Little salt? You're good. I don't like to experiment. Generally. But today, I'm curious. I'm going to find something out after I peel off the sclera. See if it holds together. First, the optic nerve. Time to learn if a three-minute eye is like a three-minute egg. Wish me luck.
0: Suddenly Shocking, Volume 12 was produced by Jesse Cornett and Jeff Clement for the No Sleep Podcast Featuring performances by Kyle Akers David Alt, Alexis Bristow Jeff Clement James Cleveland Jesse Cornett Andy Cresswell David Cummings Mike Delgado, Nicole Doolin Nicole Goodnight Ellie Hirschman Atticus Jackson Peter Lewis Aaron Lillis Jessica McAvoy, Danielle McCrae, Mary Murphy, Addison Peacock, Graham Rowett, Erica Sanderson, Penny Scott Andrews, Joe Sheary, Sarah Thomas, Mick Wingert, and Dan Zappula. Musical score composed by Brandon Boone. Visit thenosleeppodcast.com to learn more about our show and our season pass memberships. Thank you for listening to Suddenly Shocking, Volume 12. This audio production is copyright 2020 by Creative Reason Media Inc., all rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc.,